outline, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 13, and we'll be looking at uh, really starting a new section in uh, the book of Acts. Chapter 13, we'll be looking at uh, the first three verses this morning, and uh, let me read that for you as we uh, begin our study uh, in the book of Acts. I deeply appreciate uh, all the men who have been preaching, have done an excellent, wonderful job, and we... Thank God for having so many gifted uh, teachers within the church. So we appreciate all their good ministry. Uh, In Acts 13, I'll uh, read the first three verses. And uh, again, as I'm reading God's holy word, inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, I encourage you to give careful attention to the reading of of God's word. So Acts 13 starting in verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers Barnabas and Simeon who is called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian who had been brought up with Herod the tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So this is uh, starting in Acts chapter 13. We move into a major transition in the book of Acts. Uh, At this point, Barnabas and Saul have just... uh, Thank you, brother. Appreciate that have just uh, returned from Jerusalem where they have delivered the money that uh, the saints in Jerusalem needed because of the famine. They needed financial aid. So the church at Jerusalem was going through its own type of uh, financial problems and woes. And Barnabas and Saul had just gone down there with the money gift and now they've come back to Antioch. And Luke now begins to switch his focus in the book of Acts. His focus has switched from Peter to Paul and also from Jerusalem to Antioch. And he launches us into really the third stage of the Great Commission. And remember how back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, uh, the Lord Jesus told His disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they would receive power And they will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And this actually becomes his outline for the book of Acts. So in Acts 1-7, through we saw the gospel at work in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem. And then in Acts 8-12, through we see the gospel going out into other cities in Judea and also in Samaria. Remember the, the ministry of Philip to the Samaritans that we saw in Acts chapter 8. And now starting in Acts 13, all the way through the end of the book, Luke now begins to... Uh, draw his line tracing the progress of the gospel in the remotest parts of the earth. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 really becomes the outline for the progression of the gospel that Luke tracks through uh, the rest of this particular book. So beginning with Acts 13, we really are launching into the missionary era of the, of the first century church. The word missionary, by the way, comes from a Latin word which, mean, uh, uh, which is missio, which means to send. So the mission of the church is to send people at the leading of the Holy Spirit into the areas of the world where they have not yet heard the gospel. And Luke brings into focus uh, one of the great uh, ministries of the church now, and that is missions. Uh, by and large, the ministry has been to Jews. Peter saw the first Gentile convert, Cornelius, come to faith in Acts chapter 10. But now the, the gospel is going to spread out to the ends of the earth. And Gentiles are primarily going to be rushing into the kingdom. Jews also, but primarily Gentiles. And that's what Luke is going to focus on. So if you look at the book of Acts, if you break it down, you can see the transition beginning to take place. 
The first 12 chapters primarily was Peter, although we have John and Stephen and Philip also played important roles. It was also centered around Jerusalem because most of the ministry was concentrated there in the city of Jerusalem. And then it began to spread out into Samaria. So that's what we saw in the first 12 chapters. But now starting in chapter 13, we have... 16 chapters basically devoted to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The first 12 chapters are largely dealing with Peter, but now 16 chapters will will be dealing largely with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So there's a switch from Peter to Paul. Now you also have Barnabas, you have Silas, you have Luke that that play minor roles. It's mainly going to be Paul. The switch is also from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, Peter will only be mentioned one more time in this section, and that will be in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. But again, Paul comes into into the main picture. And also, he's based out of Antioch, not Jerusalem. So the focal point for ministry now becomes the church at Antioch. And again, this is where they're going to launch these missionary journeys of Paul. He'll go out on his first missionary journey, then come back and report to the church of Antioch. Then he'll go off on his second missionary journey, and he'll come back and report to the church of Antioch. Goes on on his third missionary journey, ends up in Jerusalem, gets arrested, and then eventually goes to, to Rome by virtue of the, uh, the shipwreck on Malta. So this is really kind of the outline. You can see the transitions taking place uh, in the book of Acts. So we might ask a question, why is there such emphasis on Paul? I mean, Peter was, you know, supposedly the first pope, right? I mean, why isn't there just 12 chapters to Peter and yet there's 16 given to Paul? Well, of course, Peter was not the pope, but we find that Luke has a special affinity for Paul. And I think this is important in understanding why there's 16 chapters devoted to Paul and only 12 to to Peter and others. And the first reason is that Luke was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And Paul's ministry was primarily to Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so Luke has an affinity with Paul's ministry because he himself is a Gentile. How do we know that? Well, Paul in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10 and 11 uh, states that pretty clearly. Notice in verse 10, he speaks of Aristarchus and Mark and Justus. And then he says, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. That is, they're Jews. They've been circumcised. They're the only ones that are with him uh, when he's writing this letter. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justus. And then, in the next verse, he mentions Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Which obviously meaning they are not circumcised. They are Gentiles. They're not numbered among the Gentiles. So Luke is a Gentile convert to Christianity. And as a Gentile, he has a very special heart For Paul, whose primary focus of his ministry is to preach to Gentiles. Because he is one also. And he has tasted of the waters of life from the Jewish Messiah. And so he has a a love for the Gospel and the grace of God that's going out to Gentiles. So so Paul comes into his, uh, his view here in the book of Acts and is the dominant figure from here on out. We also can observe from this observation that Luke is a Gentile, that he's the only Gentile author of the New Testament. All the others are Jews. Luke is the only one who actually wrote part of our New Testament, and he's an uncircumcised Gentile believer in Jesus Christ. And he also wrote more of the New Testament than any other author, even Paul. If you add up the length of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which are two of the longest books in the New Testament, the the actual length of those books is more material than if you add up all of Paul's letters combined. So Luke is a Gentile who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. 
And I think that's, that reflects on the glory of the new covenant and the glory of the gospel that's going out to the ends of the earth, primarily seeing a great harvest among the Gentiles. That the Spirit of God would choose a Gentile convert to be the only, to write more of the New Testament than, than any Jewish author did. So I think this reflects on just the glory of the new covenant of the Gentiles being grafted into the olive tree of Israel in Romans 11. And you see that this is the main focus of uh, the ministry uh, where God is now hardening the uh, Israel. There's a remnant still being saved of the Jews, but primarily the harvest is from the wild olive trees out, out, uh, out in the woods, if you will. So this is the first reason I think why, why Luke is so drawn to Paul. Because Luke as a Gentile is drawn to the Apostle who focuses primarily his ministry on, on, the, on Gentiles. We can see this uh, for the Apostle Paul being uh, an emphasis on Gentiles that when God saved him back in Acts 9.15, he revealed to, to Paul... Go, he's speaking to Ananias who ministered to Saul at that time. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And notice that Gentiles are put first because that would be the primary domain of his ministry would be ministering to the Gentiles. Later on, Paul himself would, would encapsulate this, this uh, calling that he received in Acts chapter 9 when he said in effect that Christ told me to go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's his ministry. And in Romans 11, he says that uh, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So Luke, as a Gentile, is drawn to this brother because he's an apostle, but his realm of ministry is primarily to Gentiles. And so Luke bonds with that. He loves that. I think that's why he's, he's emphasized so much in the book of Acts. And secondly, Luke also, being a Gentile, has a special interest in God's grace to the Gentiles. We see this in his gospel, and we see it also in the book of Acts. But if you look at the four gospels, each one of them have their own unique emphasis. For Matthew, Jesus is presented as the messianic king of the Jews. For Mark, Jesus is the suffering servant. In John, Jesus is God. But in Luke, Luke presents Jesus as the Savior of all men. All kinds of men. And I think he's, uh, he brings out more so than the other uh, Gospel writers that God's grace goes to Samaritans and Gentiles. And we can see this even in the Gospel of Luke. Remember in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is launching His public ministry at Nazareth, His hometown, that He goes into the synagogue and He begins to tell all these Jews about God's grace in the Old Testament. He says, in the days of Elijah, there were a lot of widows that were suffering in the famine years. But God didn't send Elijah to any of the Jewish widows. He sent Elijah to minister to a Gentile widow. The widow of Zarephath. Not a Jewish widow, but a Gentile widow. And then there are a lot of lepers in the days of Elisha. A lot of lepers in Israel. But God didn't send Elisha to heal any of the Jewish lepers, but He sent him to heal Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile leper. Well, when the Jews heard Christ emphasizing God's grace to the Gentiles, that so enraged them, they grabbed hold of the Lord and they took Him outside of Nazareth and they were trying to throw Him over a cliff. But He escaped by walking through the midst of them. You can see how Luke wants to embellish and to, and to show God's grace to the Gentiles even within His Gospel. We find of all the stories, it was Luke that told the story of the Good Samaritan. The Jew got beat up on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem and a priest walked by and didn't do anything. A Levite walked by and did anything. But a Samaritan walked by and ministered to him and paid for his care at the local inn. It was a Samaritan. 
And then there were ten lepers that Christ cleansed. And only one of them came back and gave thanks to Christ. Wasn't any of the Jewish lepers, but it was a Samaritan leper. And so Luke glories in God's grace to non-Jews, to Samaritans and Gentiles uh, more so because he's a Gentile himself. And he glories in the grace of God that he has received. So he, he's drawn to emphasize that element of God's grace to the Gentiles and to the Samaritans even within his gospel. And so we're not surprised that in the book of Acts, we're going to see a great emphasis on that as well in the ministry of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. But then there's a final reason why I think Luke is drawn uh, to the ministry of Paul and devotes 16 chapters to him as opposed to only 12 for Peter. And that's because Luke may very well have been converted under the preaching ministry of the apostle Paul. So he'd have a special love and attachment to the Apostle Paul. How do we get that? Well, it's interesting that Luke became a traveling companion with Paul starting on his second missionary journey. And usually you can see that in the book of Acts when Luke will indicate that he's with Paul when he uses a first person pronoun. We went here or we sailed there. And there he's including himself as a part of Paul's entourage. Okay? Well, the very first time that occurs is during the second missionary journey and Paul is at the city of Troas. And then suddenly from then on, we start getting and we set sail here and we did this and we did that. And it may have been that Luke, being a doctor, grew up in, in, Tars, uh, in uh, Troas and when Paul was there, heard the Gospel and was converted and was so radically transformed by the Gospel, he began to travel with Paul and be his own personal physician and be a part of the ministry team. So it could have been, and this is we can't prove this. Uh, other the the early church fathers believe that that uh, Luke was converted in Antioch. But then why does he show up in Troas in the second missionary journey out of nowhere? So it could be that he was actually brought to faith through the preaching of the apostle Paul, and that's why he has a love for Paul. He has an interest in Paul and devotes so much of the book of Acts to the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. We know Luke became a very devoted, close friend uh, to the Apostle Paul. In the very uh, last letter that Paul wrote, Second Timothy, he said that only Luke is with me. Second Timothy 4.11 So Luke had a very special bond and friendship with the Apostle Paul. Paul influenced Luke a lot. You can see the predestinarian Calvinism theology of of, uh, Paul reflected in Luke's writings, both in the Gospel and in the book of Acts. So Paul had a great impact upon uh, Luke, his life, his theology. And he had all this together, and I think we can better understand why uh, Paul is going to step out on center stage and basically be there for the next 16 chapters. So now we move to uh, verse 1 of Acts 13 and we find that uh, we're in uh, the church of Antioch. And just to review for you again its location. And uh, Antioch was the third largest uh, city in the Roman Empire at this point in time. Uh, The only larger ones were Rome, Alexandria, and maybe Ephesus, according to some. But it was a very large city. Population was estimated to be around half a million at this time. 500,000. So it was a very prosperous city that had a lot of uh, commerce. Just all the trappings of the world were there. It was also the headquarters to Rome's Syrian legion. So a very, very important city. Uh, we also had saw, we've seen earlier in Acts chapter 11 that some of the brethren from Cyrene, northern Africa, and Cyprus, the island, that's where Barnabas is actually from, made their way to Antioch and began to preach to the Greeks. Now, other, others have gone up there and were preaching to the Jews only, but you have brethren from these two uh, other locations began to 
preached the gospel to the Greeks, and many Greeks were being saved. So the church of Antioch was very much a mixed church. Jews and a lot of Gentiles, a lot of Greeks coming into the church. So it was a very, very strategic uh, church in a very strategic city. And no doubt, because they had a lot of Greeks, it began to fuel a real interest in missions. Now notice in verse 1 again, we read there were prophets and there were teachers. As I understand prophets, they were the ones who had received direct divine revelation from God. And that gift was very much uh, operating in the first century. Then it, then it died out after the completion of the canon. I don't think we have any prophets today. But back then, they had a very important ministry. And also teachers. Uh, the prophets would uh, give divinely inspired revelations directly from God to the people. The teachers would expound on the Scriptures and expound on these revelations. And uh, you put these two gifts together and Luke is emphasizing that the church of Antioch, they were well staffed with, with good teachers. I mean, they had prophets. They had teachers of the Word of God. So they were, they were very gifted. They were very blessed to have so many teachers. And then he begins to list some of the individuals among them. Uh, we have Barnabas, um, who is obviously a, a Levitical Jew that we are told in other places from the island of Cyprus. And uh, he was a, a Hellenistic Jew that... Uh, grew up in a Greek culture from the island of Cyprus. That would make him a Hellenistic Jew. Very much immersed in Greek culture. Then we have Simeon called Niger. Niger means black. So he was probably a black man, which means he could have come from Egypt or northern Africa. But Simeon was there. And again, some say the, the Niger refers to black hair, but probably he was, he was a black man. Then we have Lucius of Cyrene, from North Africa. Uh, Cyrene is uh, from North Africa. And possibly one of the founders of the church in Antioch, as we saw earlier. His name is a Latin name, so he probably grew up in a Roman culture. And then you have Manian, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And this expression that he was brought up is very interesting because it says, it indicates that he was either a foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch, that would be uh, the Herod of uh, Herod Antipas that beheaded John the Baptist and was part of the trial of Jesus. That's this Herod that's in view here. He was either the foster brother or a close companion and friend of Herod when he was when he grew up, which means that he was uh, an aristocrat. He was a noble. He grew up with all the advantages and perks of his day. He was a part of nobility with close connections with the ruling dynasty of the Herodian dynasty. And yet, God in His grace saved this, this man and became part of the church. We can see the, the sovereign grace of God in, in saving Menean, but not Herod. But here you have someone from noble birth that now becomes a leader in the church of Antioch. I love this because... Um, I think it speaks a lot to just God's diverse grace in so many different ways. You remember Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, he told the Corinthians to consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise, not according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that He might nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. And even though it says that there are not many noble, you find a few that are saved from the noble class of men. And Menean would be one of them. I remember reading about... Uh, Selena Hastings, also known as the Countess of Huntington, or they would call her Lady Huntington. Uh, she was greatly influenced by George Whitfield uh, back in the 17th century, and uh, 18th century, I'm sorry. 
And George Whitfield was such a powerful preacher and evangelist. She was drawn to him and embraced the Calvinism of George Whitfield. She was a very godly woman, very wealthy. She was a noble woman. She gave vast amounts of her wealth for supporting the ministries of George Whitfield and other evangelists and also orphanages and, and other ministries, uh, uh, preacher training schools. And she used to always thank God for the letter M. And someone said, well, why, why do you thank God for the letter M? Because in this verse, if that letter M was not there, it would say that there are not any noble that are saved. But praise God, there's a letter M because it says not many. That means a few. And that's how I got in. That's how God saved me. There's not many noble, but there are a few. And God chose to save me from the sin and the, and the judgment that I deserve. So she would praise God for the letter M. And I think Manian would, would probably... Uh, had the very same attitude because he was from that nobility, that aristocratic society, and yet God saved him. And like Moses, he was willing to leave all of that, the wealth, the, the palaces, to identify with God's people oftentimes persecuted. Reminded of, of Moses who refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter to leave the perks and advantages of the royal court for the scorn of being identified with God's people. And it says of Moses that he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He would rather be a fellow sufferer with Christ than a fellow persecutor with the family of Herod. And I think these kinds of men who sacrifice so much to bond and be a part of God's church are a great example for us. Not to love the things of the world. Thank God if we have a measure of the comforts and blessings. But don't build your life around that stuff. Be willing to say no to it to identify with Christ because that's oh so very much better. And I'm just, I love to see these men who, who are born into, you know, with a, a silver spoon in their mouth, if you will, willing to set it aside to identify with the Lord Jesus. And then finally we have Saul. Why is he put last? Well, some say this order really ranks them based upon uh, their notoriety, maybe on their age, we really don't know. Saul could have been a young man at this time, but also the fact that he's mentioned last probably also indicates that he has not really come into his full ministry yet. And uh, soon he will, but he's mentioned last here as one of the teachers, one of the prophets of the church there at Antioch. But just notice the diversity. This is what you want to see in a local church multiracial, multinational. And this is among the leadership, by the way. Black and white, noble and common, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. And all of that probably again accounts for their love for missions and their desire to be a part of the great work of spreading the Gospel. And notice also there's a plurality of leaders of these prophets and teachers within the church. I think the church sadly has fallen away from this principle today by and large for putting the ministry in the hands of one man. And this is not wise nor is it biblical. And it definitely will leave the church weaker when that happens. Well, in verse 2, we now see the ministry of missions beginning to, to flourish within the church. We read in verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Well, how are they ministering to the Lord? That sounds kind of, it's not like the Lord needs to be ministered to. But this word ministering is actually kind of a, a general word used in the Old Testament for the priesthood, the worship of God, all the activities of the priests in serving God uh, at the temple or the tabernacle before that. 
So ministering, serving to the Lord means they're doing it as unto the Lord. So they are ministering, they're serving because Christ wants them to, because they're, they're trying to do their work as unto the Lord, doing it in His name for His glory. That's what this, this means. It's a reference here probably to the general public ministry that was going on within the church. The teaching of the Word of God. They were ministering to the Lord. Teaching the Word. Singing. Praying. Bringing their tithes and offerings. Celebrating the Lord's Supper. Engaging in fellowship. Ministering to one another. They engaged in worship. And they were doing all of this as unto the Lord. That's the idea that's communicated here. But notice also they were fasting. Actually, fasting is mentioned twice in verse 2 and then again in verse 3 when they actually commissioned Barnabas and Saul. They were fasting. I think this is kind of interesting for us today because uh, we don't do much fasting. It's not emphasized. We probably rarely do it. And yet Jesus said that the bridegroom, when the bridegroom is gone, then His disciples will fast. I think the Lord expects us to fast. He doesn't lay down any hard, fast rules about when to do it, how long to do it. That's left up to us. But I think fasting, as it was here, was for religious purposes. Uh, This is not uh, in order to lose weight for health reasons, although fasting is great on, uh, on health reasons as well. But this is primarily for religious reasons. Um. When we fast, we're, we're denying ourselves food and water or just food alone for a period of time to show to God that He's more important to us than feeding our flesh. John Calvin wrote in his Institutes that whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer. The reason Calvin goes on and explains why fasting is so important is because it humbles us. Because whenever you're going without food, you feel weaker. Your, your stomach starts to growl. You feel empty. And we turn that weakness and we turn that emptiness into an expression of our soul to God. Oh God, I'm weak. And fasting helps me feel my weakness. Oh God, I'm empty. And my empty stomach helps me to realize how empty I am in my soul. And I need You, Lord. I need You. And fasting was designed to encourage and stimulate more the intensity of our seeking after God. There are many purposes for fasting revealed in the Scripture. Sometimes it's just to to get closer to God. Maybe you feel God is distant. And you want a closer communion, a closer fellowship with God. Fasting may help you to get there. It feeds our soul on God's Word and prayer when I intentionally deny myself a meal and spend time in the Word of God instead letting the Scriptures feed my soul and and give me drink for my thirsty uh, soul as well. It can minister to our soul in that way. As I've already indicated, it's a way to help us express our earnestness to God in prayer. You know, a lot of times we lack earnestness when we pray. I think uh, sometimes I think my prayer life is like when I go make a deposit at the bank and I drive up to the to the teller window and the little canister is there and I take it out and I open it up and I stick a check in there or cash and I stick it back in the deal, push the button, and then I'm just sitting there twiddling my thumbs. And it's like I'm sending off a prayer. Just twiddling my thumbs, checking my texts, my emails on my phone. And we're not engaged when we pray. And every once in a while I may look over, okay, she got it. You know, she's working on it, okay. She'll get it back here in a little bit. Then finally it starts coming down the vacuum tube and plop, there it is again. I take it out and I'm on my way. A lot of times our prayer lives are like that. We just pray. It's just like we're, we're sending off a prayer and we just we don't really mean it. We're not really earnest about it. We're just, well, do this, Lord. I'm going down my list. Bless them. Do this. Save that person. And there's no intensity. There's no earnestness. 
But fasting can help to develop that. When our soul becomes somewhat stagnant, we need something to, to, to jar it, to waken it up. And sometimes fasting can employ to be employed in uh, stimulating the earnestness with which we're seeking after God. Fasting can be used to help us express our praise to God or our repentance. If you're guilty of a sin and the Spirit of God has convicted you and sometimes fasting with repentance just helps us express the sorrow and the emptiness of what we've done in, in sinning against God and then rejoicing in the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. Fasting can help us in seeking divine protection when you're going through a difficult time, you're being bombarded, sometimes fasting can, can help bring down God's protective wall around you. Or when you're needing direction and guidance, when, when you have to make a big decision about something, fasting oftentimes can, can be a part of that. And I think that is why they're fasting here in verse 2. They're ministering to the Lord and they're fasting and in response to that, the Lord then answers them, which makes me think that maybe in this church they were praying, ministering to the Lord and fasting because they're looking at their church and they're saying, Lord, we have Jews, we have a lot of Greeks here, and obviously your gospel is, is finding a harvest among the Greeks, but we want to do more, Lord. As a local church, how can we be better involved in missions? How can we be better committed in, in getting the Gospel out to more Gentiles? And that may have been their prayer. And their fasting. Oh God, give us guidance and direction. Show us the way in this matter, O oh Lord. And I think there's times in the life of a church when such prayer and fasting is most appropriate. When big decisions need to be made, not only on a personal level, it would be appropriate, but on a church level. When grievous sins need to be dealt with or when guidance needed is needed on a particular ministry. Back on a personal level, parents, have you ever fasted for your children? Have you ever fasted over issues that are, that are bothering you? Issues of great importance to you and God doesn't seem to answer yet. Have, have you ever thought of fasting with your prayer and seeking the Lord? To see if God would, would bring down the blessing in your life. And I think here again, they are fasting and they are praying because I think they have a heart for missions. And I would suggest to you that maybe Northwest Bible Church can immediately make an application in our own church life to this regard. If the, if the church at Antioch was, was, was wanting God's direction and guidance for how to better get the gospel out to, to the world, to the remotest parts of the earth, and the Spirit of God then answers them by saying, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, a direct answer to what they might have been praying and fasting about, I'm suggesting that our church has an opportunity to do exactly the same thing. You know, we have a family in our church that wants to go to Japan. We have a family in our church that's been trying to raise funds for several years to get to Japan. And things are moving very, very slow. And I would wonder if it wouldn't be appropriate for Northwest Bible Church to commit ourselves, and this is voluntary, you can determine when and how much or whatever, but begin to pray and fast at whatever time designation you would prefer, maybe once a week, maybe skip one meal or more, whatever it is, and devote that time specifically for, oh God, give us guidance and direction concerning the Malones for Japan. I mean, they have a heart to go. They have a desire to go. There's no funding, hardly, has come. Maybe it's not their time. I don't know, but Lord, we need Your guidance. We need Your direction. And I think that Northwest Bible Church could enter into the very spirit and application of what the Church of Antioch was doing in trying to seek direction from God as to how they can best be involved in foreign missions. And we're blessed to be able to support many foreign missionaries in our church. We've been blessed to have three of them in our church so far this year. But we have a family in our church and we need the Lord's 
guidance. We need His provision. If, if this is a time for them to go, that God would raise up those financial uh, needs that they have. Or if not, then direct us and show us otherwise. I think it might be a challenge for us to imitate the church of Antioch to humble ourselves and to seek a, a fresh guidance from the Lord Himself concerning our church sending out our missionaries to the foreign field. And notice it was while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting that the Spirit of God spoke. Probably through one of the prophets. Not a voice out of heaven. Probably through one of the prophets that are in the church here. The Spirit of God spoke and said in verse 2, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice the Spirit of God is totally sovereign in this. I love this. Luke loves it. That's why he's emphasizing this. The Spirit of God sovereignly is going to launch and direct this particular ministry. Notice the what he tells them to do. Set apart. Set them apart. Isolate them. Take these two men and set them apart. Now this is not their call to ministry. Paul has already received his call back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. And in fact, if you look carefully at verse 2, he says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. In the Greek, that's a perfect tense. That means the calling had already previously been, been accomplished in the past. So for Paul, his calling was Acts 9.15. But now he's actually being activated into that ministry. So there's a big difference here. But he says, set them apart. So this is not uh, the calling. It's more the divine commissioning and the, the personal activation of Paul to the calling that he received uh, many years before this. Now Saul's call was a supernatural call. Not so much today. People that want to go in the ministry today uh, will not receive a supernatural call like Saul did on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him. Now today we evaluate uh, the calls of men to the ministry by looking at number one, their motivation. Do they have a desire for the work? Number two, their preparation. Do they have the proper gifts and training to do the work? Number three, the commendation. Does the church agree that these men are qualified and, and the ones to be sent forward on this ministry? And then fourthly, activation. A providential open door for the ministry. And Paul has not had that for a long time. He received his, his call in Acts 9.15 probably 12 to 15 years earlier and he was not activated in that ministry to the Gentiles till right now. He had to wait a long time. So he spent three years in Arabia, went down to Jerusalem. He ended up in Tarsus, his hometown, for probably six to eight to ten years there. Then a year in Antioch. And now finally, the Lord is activating Paul. But he had to wait many long years between his call on the road to Damascus and him being commissioned now here in the church of Antioch. The calling doesn't mean immediate activation. And Paul faithfully spent time in local church ministry growing in the Word of God, growing in the skills he needed for this ultimate ministry. And this requires patience and submission to God's will. But the Spirit of God finally, finally activates him. Set apart. And then set apart who? Well, Barnabas and Saul. The two most gifted men in the church. A lot of times we think, well, we'll send the leftovers to missions. No, you send your best. Barnabas and Saul. These are the two best men in the church. The two most gifted men. I mean, Saul. The Apostle Paul is going to be sent out of the church. You don't send just the average or the ones down there. You send your best to go out. Because that's how important missions is. So he called Barnabas and Saul to the missions. Why? In verse 2, set apart for me, the Spirit of God says. I'm not sending them out so they can go out and make a big name for themselves and they can build their little kingdom and they can go out and get all this. No, they are there for me. 
You set them apart for Me. It's My work, My ministry, My kingdom. They are servants to, to serve Me in that. So you set them apart for Me. It's to be a Christ-centered uh, ministry that they're to carry forth. And then for the work to which I've called them. Well, for Paul in particular, is the work of missions to bear Christ tells him, my name before the Gentiles. So again, the Gentile ministry will loom large. He'll go to the synagogues first. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. But primarily to the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit here is calling them, sending them. And as we'll see later, the Holy Spirit is going to go with them and empower them for the ministry. Well, what we see from this is that the gospel is not meant to be preserved like the crown jewels of the British monarchy in the Tower of London or locked away for safekeeping or kept in a trunk up in the attic. No. no the gospel is to be spread to the ends of the earth. Like seed to be cast upon the wind, to be sown far and wide in every city, state, and nation. For this seed brings the greatest harvest conceivable. The forgiveness of our sins and the gift of everlasting life. Cast this seed. Don't bottle it up. Send it around the world. That's the focus that this local church has. And then you find that the, the church, including the leaders, actually commission Barnabas and Saul in verse 3. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So the Spirit of God commissioned them, and then the local church commissioned them. They fasted and they prayed again. They commended them to the grace of God. They laid hands on them, which is uh, not conferring any supernatural powers, but when you lay hands on someone, you're basically publicly going through this symbolic gesture where you're showing you endorse them, you authorize them. You are joined with them. You are united with them. So when they go forth, they are representing you. They're representing that local church. The church of Antioch. So that missions is the work of the local church. And though they're called by God, they're sent out by that local church. And when they live their, leave their home church, and they come back, they'll report to the church of Antioch because they're still held accountable by that local church. So Antioch now becomes the base of, of uh, foreign missions and it becomes the primary focal point for missions in this uh, latter part of the book of Acts. Let me uh, conclude just by making an observation. While we need to glean from this, I think is when, when you see this emphasis in this local church, they're praying, they're ministering to the Lord, they're fasting, they're seeking direction from the Spirit of God on how they can better be involved in missions. And the Spirit of God responds and says, send out Barnabas and Saul. I think what we're seeing here is a pattern of what our priorities should be as a local church and as individual followers of Jesus Christ. That we need to focus on what is most important. The things of eternity. The Gospel of Jesus Christ which alone can save sinners from hell. This is what we're seeing drove this local church. Their desire for evangelism. Their desire to preach and teach the Word of God. Equip the saints so that they could carry the Gospel far and wide to the ends of the earth. I think these two men, Barnabas and Saul, are ready to go out and suffer for Christ. They're ready to go out and, and leave everything behind just to carry the treasure of the Gospel to those who are spiritually bankrupt and need to hear and receive it. And I think the church of Antioch challenges us not to become so preoccupied with this life on this earth that we're not to be like the rich man whose land was very productive and his solution was just to build more barns so he could hoard it all for himself. Saying, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I think sometimes as Christians, we can easily fall into that lifestyle. And yet, God spoke to that man. He said, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you have prepared? So, the man, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
The theme of that parable that Jesus told was simply, beware of every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. I think we need to be challenged individually and as a church to put the emphasis where the emphasis belongs. Not on just the temporal things of life, but the everlasting gospel has to be preached. To be willing to spend and be spent for the gospel of Christ. That's this church. And let us, by God's grace, become more Christ-centered and gospel-centered and mission-centered. Be willing to deny ourselves and take up the cross. Like Jim Elliott said, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. May we treasure the eternal things of God more than the temporal blessings from God. As Jesus said, what will it profit a man? What profit will you gain? If you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, And this should affect how we look at people around us, people we work with, people we run and we come across in our day-to-day lives. When we look at them, don't look at them for how much money they may have or what their physical appearance may be, but look at them as having a never-dying soul that's either going to go to heaven or to hell. And to pray for God to give us wisdom how we might carry the water of life to them. That's what I think we're going to be challenged with as we see the dedication of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others and the rest of the book of Acts are so committed to carrying the Gospel to those who have not yet heard it. May that infect us as well by the Spirit of God. And finally, just with personal seeking after the Lord, after the Lord, if you've never fasted, something to consider. It may add intensity It may add earnestness and it may actually bring down God's blessing that we have not yet received. And may God guide us in these things as well. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, just for the opportunity to see the Spirit of God at work in this local church of Antioch. To see their heart for missions. To see their desire to be involved in the Great Commission, to see the Gospel go to the remotest parts of the earth. And here we are in America, so blessed, Lord, and we're thankful for those blessings. We, we do pray for our nation because we are turning away from You at, a, at just a breakneck speed. And yet, Lord, we pray for Your mercy upon our country. We pray that You would use us to be the light of the world that You would also increase and enlarge our own heart for missions and the Gospel going around the world. That You would give us guidance and direction concerning uh, the Malones and their desire to go to Japan, Lord. We need that. We pray for that. But help us just to focus upon Christ and to live for Him and not be so cluttered and burdened down by all the trappings of this world. Lord, set us free to live for Christ And help us to have a love for the Gospel as this church did. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.